0: And that's what we rest on here at Covenant Grace. We preach all the time the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You guys can go and have a seat. And I am going to do the same here in just a second. I am just up here to introduce you to somebody else that a few of you know, uh, but many of you don't. i will to ask John Moffitt to come on up here. John is the pastor of Grace Reformed Church, the church that planted us. Uh, and in light of our two years as a church, I invited him to come up and see what was going on. And also just address us and pray for us. Uh, so I'm very, very thankful for John. We would not be here if it wasn't for Grace, Church, Grace Reformed Church's selflessness and their desire to see the gospel expanded. Uh, they gave of themselves so that this could exist. And so very, very thankful for their heart for the gospel, very thankful for John's friendship in particular. Uh, he's been an incredible brother to me, and I'm very glad to have him here uh, and to turn this over to him for a second. I have no idea what he's going to say or do. Uh, that just shows how much I trust him, though. So we'll see how this goes. Yeah, go for it, man.
1: All right. Yeah, this is overwhelming. The last time I was here was when we uh, installed Pas- Patrick as the pastor, and we were in Agatha's. And we we're like one third the size, I think. I don't know. This is a lot of people in here. So uh, this is encouraging. Not to say that um, God's impressed with numbers, but it's just amazing to see this many people being encouraged with the gospel. And growing in their faith and growing in christ and then taking that into their communities and we do count that a success it's been a joy patrick is, joins us uh, once a month in our elder meetings and just to hear about uh the joy of his own heart and his own struggles how he relies on christ to care for you and then how we try and find out how to care for him just a quick story i may have told you this before uh we were early in our church plant i mean it, uh, just a few years in and we um this is right before covid one of the church members came up to us though the o'connors did and they just said we need to put a church in columbia and i was like man we're we're barely even 50 people what do you mean put a church in columbia that sounds crazy two weeks later patrick calls me he and i have been talking about helping him do a church plant in california he goes hey what do you think about me just moving to tennessee and working with you i was like you're not going to believe what someone just said to me you ever heard of a town called columbia you should look it up (laughs) long story short this is where we're at today, and it's amazing to see how God used uh, a podcast and used uh, someone's heart to say, hey, I think we need to put a church in Columbia, and uh, so I'm just, it's, it's uh, a little overwhelming to see so many faces in here that I don't know, and I'm encouraged uh, what's happening here. Patrick said he just wanted me to give me a couple minutes just to uh, speak to you and then pray for you, which is the joy of my heart. I offered to preach, but this man's a preacher, and he's like, oh no, I'm preaching, i was like all good brother that's good so i had to condense my sermon no no, i'm just kidding there's no sermon here i just had a couple of thoughts uh it is uh patrick says it's an honor to be here with us but it is such an honor and joy to have built a relationship with both patrick and susan if you guys know anything susan is she's the real deal she's the real reason why this church exists because she helps love and care for patrick and if uh being in ministry now for, I've been a pastor for almost 15 years and then a church planner for six years. It's rough. It's tough. And it's uh, impossible to do without a wife who will love and care for you. And so it's just been an honor. Uh, Patrick has been a great colleague for me. Just There are many uh, Tuesdays, or th- forget, Tuesdays we get together, where uh, we have coffee and it's just where I get to dump on him for a little bit. And then he gets to dump on me and we care for each other. And I just appreciate that. But this, well, what I want to encourage you with, I know that many of you have been here. How many of you were here when we started, like the very first Sunday two years ago? Raise your hand. Okay. So you have seen the struggle and how hard it's been, moving locations, trying to find people to do children's ministry. It's been a grind, and it's been hard, and often the first two years of a church plant might be the hardest. Uh, from my experience, that's been the case. I know for Patrick, uh, it's been it's not been easy, but what ends up incurring is that you think in your mind, okay, but then it's going to get a little bit easier, right? Once we have this, or once we have that, then and you keep moving that arrival, I call it the arrival fallacy, you keep moving it down the road. See, we're six years in, and we've hit every milestone that I thought we would hit, and I'm like, it's still hard. What happened? I wake up every day and like, this is not any easier. We have more people, which just means more problems, right? (laughs) So, uh, but that's that's what the work of the ministry is for—is is to help people and encourage them. And my encouragement—I just wanted to give you a couple of verses here to encourage you. Just about what you guys have built as an amazing foundation. I know what this church is centered around, which is Christ and the gospel, and it's not just a tip of the hat of the gospel. But Christ is your hope and design and drive in every area of life. And I know that that foundation is what's going to keep this church safe. But I will tell you from years three, four, five, and six, we're going into our sixth year, or finishing our sixth year, Uh, you're going to face new challenges. And I just wanted to encourage you with some of these challenges. This is why Paul, when he started churches, he would write back to those churches and remind them a few years in, hey, this is what I think you need to remember. This is 2 Timothy. He's writing to a young pastor, and he says to him in 2 Timothy 2.10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So we read that as an American who are like, yeah, you know, we'll suffer giving up coffee and I might give up, you know, a vacation here. And Paul's like, no, nah, I mean, I'm talking about I, I ended up in prison. I ended up being beat, cast out of my house, shipwrecked. He's like, look, I'm going to do that because it's why I'm here. It's for the sake of those to whom God is saving. Um, this is why even to the Romans, he wrote Romans eight eighteen. for I consider that the sufferings, of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us paul's like, yeah, I, I understand what i've endured but when i compare it to what i get in christ this isn't this is nothing this is no big deal because i know what's what's coming so here's a couple of encouragements for you just in light of what you have accomplished And I don't want us to get discouraged as if, well, then we get a building and this will happen. And then we get elders and this will happen. We get a staff and this. You're going to constantly be fighting the same struggle and the same war, no matter if you're a church of five or 500. The struggle remains the same. And that's why the response from the New Testament has always been the same, no matter what size of congregation might be. Here's my encouragement to you, is that if you keep your focus as a church, and encouraging your pastor to always be growing in the knowledge of Christ, then you will always be safe. You will always have the energy to continue to fight. When this man begins to feel the pressure to not give you Christ, and you want culture, or you want transformation, you want politics, you've just now made his job impossible. right? It is the power of the gospel that changes our hearts and encourages and strengthens us. And a congregation that celebrates and says amen and encourages his pastor when he faithfully preaches Christ each and every week is a church that will be protected from Satan and the lies of Satan. And so be encouraging your pastor as he continues to preach. And we know that the focus of the gospel and the light of the kingdom has been the foundation of this church. We don't need to move on to the next stage. It's the only stage, right? We stand upon our, I love what you started with, a prayer of confession. We start... By reminding ourselves of the grace of God that we have received. And then that's how we proclaim the gospel. Not as those who figured it out, right? But as those who we have said, if not by the grace of God, I would not be able to stand here this morning. My last encouragement to you is that we are not here to win the world's game. And it is so hard. I've got four children. I have three teenagers. I feel this pressure. You feel this pressure. The world tells you this is what it means to win. Whether it's your physique, your marriage, your children, your job, the country. Satan's really good at distracting us. And then the church can start to think about winning in the world. We're not here to win. We are here to proclaim that Christ conquered death. And everything that you're trying to do, which is avoid death, cannot be avoided unless it's through Christ. And so we don't want to fall prey to this. And it's crazy because the way in which... Paul just described it about loss and suffering, and even Jesus says, look, seek first the kingdom of God, seek my kingdom, because this kingdom is fading. And so it's okay, we as Christians, we embrace the, the fact that this world loses, and we lose with it, because Christ is the one who redeems it. And that message is what encourages us. So I want to pray for us this morning. Before I do, I want to read this to assist us just as a reminder of the hope of our eternity. So this is First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. He says this, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Man, it is so important. Peter is saying, you will be attacked, and this is where it begins. An intoxicated mind by the world will take and place your hope on performance, you'll place your hope on yourself, or you'll place it on your government, or whatever you want, your job, your money. He says, the only hope you have is when Christ returns and brings all the benefits to you. Don't put some of your hope there. This is not a 60-40 deal. He says, your entire focus for the rest of your life is to concentrate your mind on what Christ is bringing to you by grace alone, through faith alone. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, I am so thankful that I can stand up here as one who has been set free from my own guilt and shame. And I can be one who encourages this congregation encourages their pastor to continue to do the same. We are now free because you have set us free, which means we are now free to forgive. Lord, please forgive us our debts as we forgive others of how they have failed us. And Father, for this congregation, we pray that you would free them from the pain of this world, that you would free them from... Uh, the lies of Satan that would distract them in simple ways. He presents himself as an angel of light. Lord, he comes and he causes our hearts to take our eyes off the gospel. Lord, help us to be reminded that it's only by your grace. So, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And, Lord, liberate us from the fear of death, that we, as Paul says in Romans 12, we can lay our lives down as a living sacrifice to be ready to advance your kingdom, to set people free, those who are suffering, those who are enslaved to sin, and those who do not know you, Lord. May our lives be the light that brings them to your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. So thankful. I cannot wait to go home and give a report to our church of what you guys have done here. Thank you, and God bless you.
0: Thanks, brother. Great to have you guys, and your family. It's good to see you guys. I missed you. All right, church, we are going to have a little break from Matthew today. So if you would open up your Bibles to Ephesians. We're in the process of working our way through Matthew for quite a long time. Uh, but today I wanted to go back to Ephesians because that is where we uh, started, as we started as a church. And in my own study this week, I went back there um, to just kind of remember what we learned and what we saw and the kind of foundation God laid for us through that section of his word. Uh, And as I was, uh, I was struck by a particular theme, and I don't think it's a theme I brought up specifically when we preached through it initially. And when I say a theme, a more accurate way to put it would be a description, a description. The description of a Christian. What is a Christian? There's lots of ways we could describe it, lots of accurate ways we could describe it. But I think if we look at Ephesians in total, there's, there's a very short, succinct description of what makes somebody a Christian, what describes a Christian that bubbles up to the surface. Right? And that is that a Christian, to be a Christian, means to be in Christ together. To be a Christian means to be in Christ together. This theme runs throughout Ephesians. And so what I want to do today, this is right at the very heart of who we are as a church, is I want to propound that theme to you with various passages from Ephesians and and show you how Paul shows this to us and show you through it the riches and, and the glory that is in that brief description for us. To be in Christ together. It's three little words. It's not much. But there is so much loaded and freighted into that. For us brothers and sisters and I want to help you see that I want you to help you see the beauty and the riches that you have by bearing the name Christian. and not only do I want you to see the riches and the glory that's in these words but I want you to see the necessity of all three sometimes we might have a tendency to leave part of this out or to minimize part of it but all three of these are absolutely essential when it comes to thinking about what a Christian is is let me pray for us and we'll dive in lord we thank you for your word we thank you for what it reveals to us and what it shows us who you are and what you have done for us the fact that you sent christ to save sinners we thank you for that lord and we pray that as we see it in your word this morning that you would open up the eyes of our heart to it that it would not just be an intellectual exercise but as we hear the glorious work of what you've done for us in Christ and what it has made us and what it has called us to, that our hearts would be stirred up to honor you and to rejoice in you the way that we ought and to move out towards each other the way that we ought to in light of these things. So pray you work with your word through your spirit this morning and your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start by talking about the first two words of that description. Of being in Christ together. In Christ. This is a huge phrase for Paul throughout Ephesians. In in a way, it's his kind of summary of what it means to be a Christian. is to be in Christ. And we hear it over and over again. I'm going to read from Ephesians 1, just verses 3 through 6, to get us started. There we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, four short verses, there are three distinct blessings that come from being in Christ. Paul says that we are blessed in Christ, that we are chosen in Christ, and that we are adopted in Christ. To be blessed, what does that mean? We've talked about that recently in Matthew, right? When we looked at the Beatitudes, blessed is so-and-so because of this. And if you guys remember, we talked about the fact that to be blessed does not mean to feel good, Right? It's not to feel satisfied with how things are. It's not to be momentarily happy. To be blessed is something much more solid. Right? The idea of being blessed in Scripture is the idea that you are objectively in a good place. That your circumstances, your situation has been changed, regardless of how you feel about it, to be good and favorable to you. When you think about those Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit doesn't feel good. What Jesus is saying that those who are our opponents, here, they, they do have it good, whether it feels like it or not. And so when Paul says, you are blessed in Christ, what he is saying is that in Christ, your circumstances, your entire situation in every way is good now. It is good now. You have no reason to envy anybody else. Where you are is enviable. Regardless of how it feels in this moment, and I know the moments don't feel like that, right? We live in our flesh. We live in the midst of a sin-controlled world with spiritual enemies, right? Our circumstances do not feel good often. And that's why it's so important to understand what this means. It doesn't matter how we feel. In Christ, we do have it good, regardless of the momentary feelings are a momentary experience of it, right? If you are in Christ, you should be envied above all other people, regardless of what else could be said about your situation. That is fact, because of what we have in him. The second thing he says is that we are chosen, chosen in Christ, to be holy and blameless. Blameless. Right? Now it's interesting that we, he's chosen us for this particular purpose—to be holy and blameless, to be apart, to be set apart from sin to God, and to be without guilt. Now, in this one, it's very close in play, it's very important that we pay close attention to the little words, right? Because if we don't, this can mean very, very different things. Paul does not say here that he chose us because we are holy and blameless, right? He doesn't say. That God chooses us once he sees a certain amount of progress or effort or work on our hand. Then he chooses us, right? Once we get ourselves holy and blameless, now he'll set his name on us. Now he'll bring us into Christ. That's not what he says. Nor does it say that he chose us so we better be holy and blameless. We better get our act together or else. Being in Christ is not a probationary status, right? Right? or you better clean up your act in order to stay here. That's not what he says either. What he says is that he chose us in Christ so that we would be holy and blameless. We are chosen in Christ. We're pointed back to that union we have with him. And Jesus, God's choice of us, is what makes us holy and blameless. It is not something we do. It is something that, God does. He chooses us and makes us holy and blameless because he unites us to Christ, the only one who is actually holy and blameless. You are not. If you think you are, you are deluded. Let's talk. You're not. Christ is the only one who is holy and blameless, and the only way we—that can be true of us—and we are united to him and have his righteousness imputed to us and have him take our sin and guilt— We get credited with his perfection while he is credited with hard guilt, making us blameless. So we are blessed in Christ. We are chosen in Christ. And lastly, in these verses, Paul says we are adopted in Christ. Adoption has some different connotations in Paul's day than it does in ours. It was an important tool for the Roman upper class. It was a way of ensuring family legacy. Right? A lot of times if you were wealthy and had position that you were going to pass on, the priority was finding a worthy heir, an heir that would carry on your name in a, in a way that would do an honor, whether that person was of your blood or not. So often powerful people, rich people, even emperors, would disinherit their children in favor of a chosen heir whom they would adopt. And this was really the only significant way of improving your social standing in the ancient Roman world, right? We're used to come to the American idea that you work your way up the ladder, you bootstrap things. In the Roman world, you were basically born into what you are, and you're kind of stuck there. But adoption could take you from the lowest rungs of society to being the heir to the throne of the greatest empire that had yet been. Through this one act. So adoption... Sometimes we think of adoption nowadays as almost some kind of secondary thing, something that has to happen because of a lack in a way. But that is not the way it was viewed in Paul's day when he was writing. It was not some kind of secondary status. It was one of the greatest honors you could receive. Right? You were chosen to inherit. You didn't just get it by default. You were chosen. You were picked. And this was recognized in Roman law. Adopted children were more secure than even biological children. Biological children could be disowned. They could be disinherited. Adopted children, adoption was so final that you could not disinherit an adopted child. It was secure. It was permanent. The adopted son's position was stronger than even the natural-born one. Right? There's so much freighted in Paul using this language. He's saying that we were chosen, right? Right? That, that we didn't pick, that God chose us. Right, he's saying that we have a new family. We were pulled out of this old fa- family. Elsewhere in Scripture, it says we were, Satan was our father. We have been brought into a new family where the father is good, not an abusive liar. It also means that we are God's heirs, that we will inherit all good things from him. And beautifully, it means that this new status Of bearing the name of the God of the universe is irrevocable. It cannot be removed. It cannot be taken. It is settled and final. Church, just we're six verses into the book, right? And think about what Paul has already said. We are. We are blessed in Christ. Our, everything about our circumstances, everything about our situation has been permanently changed to something good and wonderful and enviable because we are in Christ. Right? We've been chosen, the God of the universe, set his affection on us and made us part of his family. Right? And we've been adopted and made his very heirs. Like, this is heady stuff, guys. Like, this is stunning what we have in the gospel. And I think we should ask the question, how how should we think about having these riches? How should we think about that, right? When, When we realize who we are in Christ and all that we have, how should we now, how do we wrap our heads around that? How should we think about it? Well, I think Paul, in the way that he writes the letter, wants us to remember how we came by all these gifts in Christ. He wants us to remember how we came by them. The next few verses begin to point us there. In Ephesians 1, verse 7, we read this. In him, again Christ, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That first verse, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. All right, that's the, that's the how. Right, that's the how. And it gets expanded and made crystal clear in chapter two. Let me read this longish passage to you. But it's absolutely worth it just soak these words in Ephesians 2 says this and you were dead not sick not broken not weak not needing a little help you were dead in your in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone may boast. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. When we stare and look and gaze on the blessings that we receive in Christ, it needs to be married up and paired with the fact that we deserve absolutely nothing of them. We deserve wrath. We are as deserving as wrath as anyone you can look at out in the culture out in the world. We are just as fallen short of the glory of God as anyone we can point to. We have these riches. We have this new identity. We are part of this new family. We have moved from death to life by sheer grace alone. You cannot bring any of yourself any of your doing into it and this does two things for us church first of all it should humble us arrogant christians are the most ridiculous thing the world has ever known They're, it's absolutely ridiculous absolutely ridiculous we bring nothing to the table this is the core of what we believe Our righteousness is filthy rags apart from Christ. It is despicable. We are dead apart from him. So it it should humble us. It should humble us. We should never forget where we came from. We should not forget that we were once dead. We should not begin to think when we look at these blessings, begin to think that we deserve them. Or that God sure picked well when he got me. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And produces nothing good but on the flip side it should give us an incredible confidence because the fact that you have nothing to do with it means it doesn't depend on you because if it depended on you you would lose it and you would blow it and you would constantly have to be afraid of what's gonna happen but it doesn't depend on you it is all on the work of Christ and he has finished that work and he has done it perfectly so there is no fear you have perfect assurance all that was needed to accomplish all of this has been done for you. It cannot change. So we as Christians get to live in this beautiful place of, of total humility before our neighbors. Right? We didn't have to walk around and thumb our noses at anybody. And yet, at the same time, with a total, absolute confidence in these blessings that have been talked about. Because they do not depend on us. They rest on Christ who will not fail us. These things can only be received as a gift of grace, a pure gift. And this is, this is hard, church. In our flesh, we don't want the gospel to work this way. This is actually the hard part of the gospel, is the fact that you don't get to bring anything to it. We love glory to a man, Every single one of you does. Your flesh loves glory. You want to accomplish something and have something you can hang your hat onto. Yes, maybe Jesus does 99.9% of it, but man, I did this. I've got this thing to hold onto, right? When Jesus said the way is narrow, this is what he meant. It didn't mean you had to be as perfect as you can be. It could be, you could only get in when you receive it as a totally a gift. The way is as wide as Jesus and no wider. The only way you get through is if you abandon yourself and come in fully and wholly on him. This is hard. Our flesh wants glory so much. We've been given the most remarkable gift ever, and yet we'd rather have the glory than the gift too often. But we can't. We can't. It does not work that way. It will be on Christ's account alone, not yours. That's the condition for entry. The condition for entry is not that you clean yourself up, it's that you abandon yourself, that you despair of yourself and throw yourself wholly and totally on the work of Jesus Christ. That's how these things are ours. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. Now I want to shift We could have focused on the in Christ part of this little three-word theme. Now I want to move to the together part, because that's what Paul does here in chapter 2. The second half of chapter 2, he explains that something radically has changed, not just in the way that we relate to God, but as our relationship with God has changed in Christ, so has our relationship to one another. The people of God are not going to be demarcated by natural boundaries or bloodlines, but simply by faith. Right? And every other kind of thing that distinguishes us from one another is trumped by the commonality of being brought into Christ. The work of Christ just didn't reconcile us to God, it reconciled us to everybody else who was brought into him and creates this new people. And it's interesting, If we, I'm not going to read the whole thing because we don't have time to do that, but as Paul's talking about that at the end of Ephesians 2, he doesn't just say the gospel comes to these different people in their own places, and kind of keeps everybody, like, separate but equal, distinct from each other. No, it says it pulls them together and makes them one man, builds them together into one body, right? It's like the difference, we're not all listening to the same album at home, we're at, like, a concert together. It's a very different thing, Right? And what Paul's describing here is the fact that these people are now being brought from where they were and brought together and bound together to one another in Christ. So church, the reality is these blessings that we talked about, these blessings that come to us in Christ, they are personal, but they are not individual. They are personal, but they are not individual. Ephesians 2, 19-22 says this, structure. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul uses the image of a body, right? We're all parts of this one body with Christ as the head. In the New Testament, you find no concept of a Christian that functions as an individual. Just not a New Testament reality. No one, none of the apostles conceive of a Christian that operates like that. There's no Lone Ranger, John Wayne Christianity out there. It's just you and your horse out in the Wild West, that is not the design of the church, and that is not what you have been saved into. And Paul draws us out even further in chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins like this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of Peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's so interesting. Paul here, he's shifting. He's been explaining the glories of the gospel, and now he's shifting to the implications of it, right? Now that he's established our position in Christ, how do we live from that position? What do we do? What, what does it look like to walk worthy of this new standing we have? They could say all sorts of things, right? But what he talks about is he immediately talks about things that involve unity in the way we relate to each other. Everything he lists off has to do with being with each other. You can't do these things by yourself. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, maintaining unity, all these things are things you have to do with your brothers and sisters. You cannot do these alone. The implication is that you cannot walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called to by yourself. You cannot do it. It's not what God made. Right? It's not what God made. God did not make a bunch of individual Christians. He pulled a bunch of individual people out of darkness into light and made them into a family. Made them into a body. Made them into a living temple for himself. Guys, Christianity is a team sport. It is inherently corporate. The Bible has no concept of an individual Christianity that is cut off from the body of Christ. You cannot work worthy of your calling by yourself. You need God's people, and God's people need you. This is difficult for us, too, guys. As all these things are, right? But particularly as modern people who live in the West, we are part of the most individualistic culture that's probably ever existed. And we're just programmed to look at life from an individual perspective. It's all about what I do. I deserve what I do. Everything is very siloed off. But that is not the way that Christianity functions. We tend to see ourselves as individual Christians, and churches are like spiritual vendors, where we just kind of go and get what I need here and get what I need here and kind of just fill in the gaps on my own personal development program that I'm doing. That's not what Scripture teaches about the church or about the Christian life. That's not what you are designed to do. When God brought you into Christ, He made you part of a people. And the new creation that He made you is designed to function as a part of a whole. Listen as I continue on in chapter 4. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts, gift skip down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in love. Paul says here that God gifts his people, when he brings them in, he gifts his people with things that other people need. He does not gift you with stuff for you. He gifts you with stuff for the sake of his church, for the sake of his body. He did not make you to be sufficient on your own. You are made to need the giftings and the care of the people in your church, of the body that God has made you a part of. And as those gifts are exercised in love, the body is built up. And Paul talks specifically about how it is the body's protected and how it is matured through this happening, right? There is our world, like, the way the scripture describes Satan has a lot to do with lying, right? He is the father of lies. He is a deceiver. That is his game because he has nothing good. That's all he can do, right? He does, it doesn't work if he can't lie. All temptation is lying, Right? It's promising that this thing will do something it won't do. Satan is a liar. It's at the very heart of who he is and how he works. The fascist talks about getting tossed around by every wind of doctrine. Right? How hard is it to parse out what's real and what's not these days? And it's getting harder and harder. Things like AI developing all this stuff. The world is a confusing, confusing place. And that absolutely makes sense after the fall. That fits with the nature of sin. But what Paul says here, if you don't want to be deceived, if you don't want to get tossed around, if you don't want to get blown on the winds of every new Christian fad that comes up, or drawn away by heretics, or caught up in what culture tells you is true, if you want to be guarded against those things, where does he say it happens? In the church. Not by yourself. You are so vulnerable by yourself. I am so vulnerable by myself. This has nothing to do with the amount of education you have, how well you know your Bible. You are not made to be alone. Scripture calls us sheep. Sheep don't do well by themselves, outside of their flock, without their shepherd. They turn into dinner, pretty much universally. They're not wild animals. Just Google some videos of sheep, you'll see. Prove, prove the point real quick, they're, they're nuts they need help that is us, every single one of us God designed you to be in a church for your protection but it also designed you to be in a church for your growth, not just protection for the negative, but for you to grow and move forward the things that God ordained that mature you right? we like to just think that we can just come up with whatever we want to and whatever feels good and that will grow us because we like it that's just not how it works God is the one who made you a Christian. He's the one who grows and matures Christians, and he does it his way with the things that he has ordained. And those things primarily happen in the gathering of the local church, the preaching and reading of the word of God, praying together, singing the gospel to one another, confessing our sins to each other. These are the things that God uses to grow and develop us. They don't look real flashy all the time. They're pretty mundane. sometimes they feel really boring. I get that. But God says he uses the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak things to make fools of the strong. That's how he works. So that's what he wants to do. Right. So then this is what he's saying. Right. You want to grow. You don't need to go come up with your own programming. He's got it. Right. You need to be in the church because you need everything that's there. You need those who have teaching gifts to feed you and strengthen you and nourish you that way. And then you need all the rest of the gifts of the church to build you up in love so your burdens can be carried, so you can be rejoiced with when you need rejoicing, so people can come alongside you when you're sorrowing, when you're doubting. They can lift your eyes to Christ. All these things, this is where they're designed to happen. So if you want to grow and mature, if you don't want to get derailed, you need the church full stop and when I say that trust me I know churches are flawed I know this church is flawed probably i probably know it better than anyone else right it's flawed because I'm here I know that it is a flawed broken weak thing that looks really silly It does not look like the way to accomplish anything in this world but do we walk by faith or do we walk by sight Do we trust the world's wisdom, or do we trust what God's promised to do? I'm going to go with what God's promised to do, and I'm going to die on that hill, and we're going to die on that hill. Just as a hand needs a body to grow and thrive, just as a roof needs walls to support it, you need the local church. Do you know how long a hand survives, stays alive when it's separated from a body? If you do everything right, about three days. Ice all the right things. So you can still—it's like salvageable. You know, that's what the internet told me anyway. Seems about right. Maybe a little generous, but right. How long will your hand live if it's attached to the body? As long as you do, which hopefully is longer than three days. You're all—you're all above that right now, actually. So we're doing good, right? It's kind of a hyperbolic example, but Jesus uses that picture of a body for a reason. But the truth is, this isn't just about you, right? The church needs you also. A hand without a body will die, but a body without a hand is impoverished. If this is your church, that means I need you. God puts you here because I need you. I need the ways that you are gifted and the way the Holy Spirit is working in you for me to grow and mature and to be protected. I 100% believe that because that's what Scripture teaches. So when you, if you want to go off and do Lone Ranger Christianity, you know, it's like thinking your sin only affects yourself. It's such a lie. It never just affects you. It always hurts other people. When you take yourself out of the church, when you don't fully give yourself to your local body, you are not just hurting yourself. You are impoverishing your brothers and sisters in Christ for whom God gifted you and equipped you for their maturing and their protection. So church, as we rejoice in two years of God's faithfulness, things obviously haven't been perfect. We've made mistakes. We've done things wrong. There have been hard things. But there've been so, there's been so much grace and mercy, so much more grace and mercy than we deserve. And it's important to note that, that we're not acknowledging this to celebrate an accomplishment we haven't haven't done anything we're rejoicing in what god has done for us in his kindness to us we're acknowledging the wisdom and beauty of what god has designed and the fact that he has designed he, he has done it in our midst that he has made a church where these things can happen so christian according to paul in ephesians one of the ways we can describe who you are is that you are in Christ. But together. You're in Christ together with your brothers and sisters. So rejoice. Rejoice in what you have in Christ. All right, Paul talks about, the Bible talks so much about humility, and how much how important humility is. You know what Paul talks about boasting in? His weakness and the gospel. Right? Christians, we should revel in this. We should absolutely revel in who we are in Christ, how much we've been given, and how undeserving we are of it. This should be our song, our theme, the thing that just is the glasses that color our whole life. Rejoice in what God has done for you. But know that part of those riches is who's sitting next to you. That's part of what you've been given in Christ. With all the imperfections, with all the sin, with all the ways they might be weird and quirky, they are God's gift to you. They are part of the blessings that you inherited when you were brought into Christ. And they need you. They need how the Holy Spirit is working through you. And you need them. Whether you feel it or not. Whether you realize it or not, you do. Trust God on it rather than what you feel. Again, it doesn't look impressive. There's nobody, there's nobody outside of these walls who would come in here and think this is any kind of big deal, right? But what I see is sinners who've been forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ and who love and care for each other in really broken and imperfect ways, but that God is faithfully keeping and will safely bring home. And that's the greatest thing in the world. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for what we have in Christ. There are so many things that, as John mentioned, that clawed our attention, that yell and scream, that they are so important. And yet, the one thing that we absolutely have to have is to have our sins forgiven, to be reconciled to God. And what a glorious truth that that has all been done completely apart from us and given to us as a gift. We rejoice in Christ this morning. Lord, if our hearts are cold and we can't do that this morning, we pray, we know it's not because the gospel is not good. We know it's because of our flesh. And I pray that you would soften us and, and restore to us the joy of your salvation. Help us to see it and to really perceive it and to, to savor it, to revel in it, to boast in it the way that we ought to. Lord, and then let it flow out into how we relate to each other. Give us the humility to realize that we need what you have built, what you have made, what you have designed in the church with all its problems, with all its failures, which you see far better than us. Yet this is your agenda. This is how you decided to do it. This is how your kingdom is advancing and growing. This is it. And I pray that you would help us to trust that. Guard us from running after anything else. Help us to trust what you said you will do through the ways that you will do it and to not be moved. Lord, help us to grow together. We're still so young as a church. We're still getting to know each other. We have a lot of life to do together. We're going to sin against each other a lot. We're going to go through a lot of hard things. We're going to have a lot of joys to celebrate together. But Lord, I pray through the midst of all of that, that by your Holy Spirit, you would draw us closer together, that so when the world around us, that we are to bear witness to Christ who sees us, they would wonder about our love and what Christ has worked in us. Lord, we know these things don't lie in us, but all must be the work of your Spirit. So we entrust it to you and ask that you would make much of your name in our little church here. We pray this in in his name, in Christ's name. Amen.